are back here on Cinephile. So glad to have you with us. Thanks so much to all those who listened previously and enjoyed what we got from the likes of Adam Driver, Chloe Seventy, along with my Mount Rushmore sports films. Uh, so happy to have people who are not only continuing the journey with us from ESPN, uh, but also checking out the podcast now in Cadence 13, perhaps newcomers of the podcast. As always, you can tweet us, CinephilePod, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E-P-O-D, or you can tweet me as well, A-D-N-A-N-S-V-I-R-K, and let us know what you think, what you'd like to see. Coming up, we got something special. We're talking to Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much, the maker of that documentary, C.J. Wallace, who's got great stories about that doc. It's about The Price is Right and one obsessive fan and just a dark turn that it makes. It's available on Netflix and all the major streaming platforms. Uh, I think you'll enjoy what CJ has to say, not only about his documentary, but also talking to Bob Barker and something that he was able to learn about him and, and other things involving that entire show. Um, we'll also be doing a Mount Rushmore of Will Smith, his best films, because the first one I'm reviewing this week is indeed Aladdin in theaters. And you'll remember just how the feedback was a little unnerving. People were saying, God, the trailer, he looks too blue. Am I not blue enough for you? Blue man group. I blew myself. There's got to be a better way to say that. Well, bottom line is this. The good news is the CGI was not going to be a major issue. And for whatever reason, that blue was fixing a different tint. And I'm happy to report the new Aladdin film is an enjoyable family film. I'm sure a lot of you remember the original 1992 film starring Robin Williams. And clearly, you can't compare yourself to an animated classic. And I think that's why this latest incarnation is quite a faithful adaptation. They realized they couldn't take too many chances, um, but what they're doing is, is, like I said, an accurate rendering of that story back in the day. Mina Masood stars. He's an unknown actor. He's from the same college as me. Both went to Ryerson University uh, in Toronto, and he plays the star, so it's huge for him to have a role like Aladdin, which I think helps because you don't have any backstory with the character. You don't have any um, inclination as to what this actor brings to the table. He's fresh. He's a newcomer, and he has that precocious attitude that you expect from Aladdin. Um, I thought the whole cast was uniformly excellent, you know, from the characters, um, you know, the actors playing Jasmine to Jafar, etc. But the whole, whole question, of course, is how's Will Smith? How's the genie? And I thought he did a, a very good job with it. I think it was hard because, again, you cannot do Robin Williams. Nobody can do a Robin Williams impression. Nobody can imitate what was greatness. And in particular, that role was so good. You know, Robin would joke about it. He said that you know, when I did it, everyone's like, oh, you've never been so good before. It's great. We don't see your face at all. It's just your manic voice. But having watched Aladdin, in fact, uh, most recently this year with my kids who are old enough now to watch it, so I was able to revisit the movie. And it's, like, amazing how many pop culture references he's dropping. Like, the fact that at one point, you know, the genie Morrison Ed Sullivan, like, it's just, it's insane the way that guy's brain worked and the way that... Uh, those animators were able to make the best of Aladdin. I mean, if you you could do a list of best animated performances, and of course, Toy Story 4 is going to be coming out soon, and we'll be reviewing that next week on Cinephile. But I'm telling you, man, Robin Williams' genie is at the head of the class. So Will Smith knows going in, I can't do that. But his genie, while not nearly as manic and uh, insanely inspired, he's more cool, you know what I mean, without being silly at times. You know, he's, he's not like a geek. I mean, he's still a genie. He can still grant three wishes. But he can be a little bit silly, and he still, in many ways, rides the charisma of Will Smith. And say what you will about his career, I think he's a talented actor. He's had a lot of success in his career. There's clearly, you look at his box office clout, and no one's going to deny that. And in particular, in the character of Genie, 
You want somebody who is genial, uh, who is warm, who is likable, and still has the verbal calisthenics that you can handle the role. And that's where Smith comes in handy. You know, that, and particularly the singing. You know, a friend like me, again, you're not going to be able to top Robin, but he does an excellent job with it. And later on, he's got some rapping as well on the title tracks and, you know, back to Will Smith's classic days. So as far as the picture itself, Guy Ritchie directed it, which is notable because you think, wow, this is the guy who did Snatch and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, and all of a sudden he's making this family film. But I thought that um, in terms of the production design and the costumes and, you know, trying to show this uh, mystical Arab world, I thought it was effective. Um, if there's a knock against the film, and I'm going to give it three Maple Leafs, which is positive review. I rank my films that are four Maple Leafs. It's that the film, <clears throat> I don't think, takes enough chances. You know, they, they definitely kept up with the pacing. You know, rather than a four-minute version, which is rather ornate of, uh, you know, a whole new world, it's kind of like a chopped-down version. Rather than Peebo Bryson, this is like, you know, two, two and a half. Um, you know, Prince Ali, which is a great song. You know, that's done with a real sense of artifice and flamboyance and all that you'd expect uh, of that spectacle. Uh, but I felt oftentimes, you know, you just kind of felt like, did we really need the remake? Like, I could just go watch the animated film. And it's, it's kind of symptomatic of what the issue is right now for Hollywood in general, is that, yeah, the new Aladdin film is good, but do you really need a new Aladdin? Was there a real clamoring to see a live-action Aladdin? And the, the broader point which I'm making is that right now when it comes to Hollywood, you know, it just doesn't seem inspired enough when you look at the box office. Like, I mean, Men in Black was in first this weekend at the box office, but, you know, <clears throat> this is... Not even the latest Men in Black. It's just it's the latest summer blockbuster. That's a spinoff. $28.5 million across over 4,000 theaters. It falls behind the last Men in Black film, which was 2002, Men in Black 2, which opened at $52 million. Uh, Dark Phoenix was a disappointment. You know, massively disappointing. $33 million so far after not being able to generate much heat in the first weekend. Godzilla only slightly better at $47 million. So the, the big holdovers are Secret Life of Pets 2 and Aladdin. I mean, Aladdin... Third place, an estimated $16.7 million, another winner for Disney, and an estimated $725 million worldwide. So even as I'm bemoaning the fact there's maybe a, a lack of originality or creativity, you're obviously going to get more of those kinds of films. In the case of Men in Black International, with Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth, it just wasn't able to overcome the fact disappointing reviews and a mediocre score from CinemaScore. Furthermore, Shaft, which is the next chapter in the film franchise about that legendary cop, that tanked. It only was in sixth place, 8.3 million, 2,600 theaters. Uh, Sam Jackson back again, but failing to generate much heat. And the film that I'm curious to see, hopefully I'll get the time, is Late Night from Mindy Kaling. Uh, she wrote the story. Emma Thompson plays as well. Again, slightly disappointing. Ninth spot at the box office, 5.1 million in ticket prices. Um, once it expands to more theaters, they're hoping for a better production. But overall, box office down 7% to date. So it's a little bit surprising. You know, we're now into the summer, and yet we're not really seeing these films delivering as they should be. A couple other uh, just film notes before we talk about a TV series, which I loved, called Rami. Uh, Quentin Tarantino going to make a, st <laughs> a Star Trek film. He, he discussed this recently. He's preparing to release Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this summer. He says the new Star Trek script already uh, is there. And there's going to be plenty of swearing. He said, in fact, if he has his way, it will certainly be an R-rated Star Trek movie. It's an R-rated movie. If I do it, it'll be R-rated. Duh. The last bit of particular note, as Tarantino has yet to formally sign on to direct the project. If he doesn't direct it, it might not wind up with the R-rating. And by the way, QT has previously said he'll retire after directing 10 films. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is his ninth. Could you imagine if his farewell to cinema, as far as the director is concerned would be a Star Trek movie. I mean, be me the blank up Scotty. 
And by the way, maybe it wouldn't count because he isn't directing from his own script in terms of how he's counting his films. Because, of course, he's written, you know, Natural Born Killers and True Romance. Didn't direct those either. But, Joe, your thoughts on Tarantino and a Star Trek film. Does that get you excited? Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't think it would be a Tarantino movie if there wasn't a bunch of cursing in it. So I'm, I'm excited. I think that he should do it. And if this was a way to end his cinematic career, I think I'm comfortable with that as well. Because I would love to see the direction he takes this in. Yeah, I mean, credit to Tarantino, he's able to, to mix in so many different genres. I mean, you certainly think of crime films, um, but the fact he's made martial arts film, you know, he's Samurais with Kill Bill. I mean, it's not just Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. He's made uh, Revenge Fantasy with Inglorious Bastards, um, you know, setting a film like Django Unchained, which is a revisionist story of slaves and a slave revolt. I mean, he's, he's obviously a guy that can touch lots of different spots, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is going to be his homage to 70s Hollywood and how he grew up and... Um, Unfortunately, the Manson murder is a part of it, although it, according to indications, it's not really going to be a focal point. Originally, I was a little bit squeamish thinking, oh, man, Tarantino's going to get gory with all this kind of stuff. But apparently, it's more of a love letter to Hollywood. And then that um, horrific period and horrific chapter um, is almost kind of emblematic of what happened there. So that's going to be Tarantino, potentially the Star Trek film. And of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we'll be reviewing next month. It comes out July 27th, counting down the days. One other story Joe sent to me is Gary Busey, Oh, God, You Devil. That's right. Remember the, the film back in the day with George Burns? Well, now Rolling Stone reporting that the Oscar-nominated actor, Gary Busey, a poor man's Nick Nolte, or maybe a crazier version of Nick Nolte, he's going to play God and Only Human, which is an upcoming off-Broadway musical. It's said to follow the relationship between Jesus and Lucifer before they were enemies, and per a synopsis, when an extreme case of creative differences gets the best of them, all hell breaks loose, literally. And as God, Busey will be referred to as the boss. God is everything love is, and that love becomes the beginning of blessings and miracles. Playing this role of God is easy because I'm not acting, I'm just believing. You come see it, and you'll believe it too. Seriously, this is the sign that the apocalypse is upon us, Joe. Gary Busey <laughs> is God. I am so excited for it. I, I might actually go see this off-Broadway, and you can come with me if you'd like, but I have to go see the, him playing this role. It's a date. We'll get Cadence 13 to uh, write this one off for us. An off-Broadway musical. It's been done as research here for Cinephile. That would probably be the way to go. Perfect. All right, I want to talk about a TV show, which I love. It's called Rami, and it's available on Hulu. And, you know, I, I often think about how something becomes universal and the importance of specificity. And when you think about writing, you say, oh, you know, what's a great writer? What's one of the first rules is write what you know. And clearly in the case of Rami Youssef, an enormously talented 28-year-old Egyptian-American stand-up comic, he said, I'm going to make a story about me and my life. And I was able to relate to it so much, uh, being the son of immigrant parents, my parents from Pakistan, his family from Egypt, uh, both being Muslim, both being raised here uh, in North America, that it was uncanny watching the story. And I was reminded of that axiom because, you know, while watching the show, even my wife from Arctic, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's making jokes that are really playing to Muslim audiences. And so we were confused. We're like, what if you're not, you're not going to get half of these jokes? Like the first scene is about, you know, him doing ablution, which is the way a Muslim cleans themselves before they offer prayers. And then this elder <laughs> member of the mosque is like, you know, chastising him how to do it. And I'm like, wow, like I couldn't imagine, you know, if you don't, I mean, I mean honestly, what he's doing is he's showing a window into a different culture and hopefully it is being, um, not only informative, but also very entertaining. And he's doing it by relying on personal experience. I mean, as he said in his comic, and it was comedy, he says, listen, I'm the kind of Muslim who likes to go to Friday prayers, and I want to go out Friday nights with girls. And, and, and the way that he balances that juxtaposition is really smartly informed in Rami. You know, reading some reviews of it, they said that if you liked uh, Donald Glover's show Atlanta, 
the character is charming and likable in the same way that Glover's character is. But, you know, he's one of these guys who's a late 20-something millennial who has a job at a startup, wears a backwards hat, lives at home with his parents, and he's just trying to kind of navigate life. He's got a couple of friends who are hysterical, uh, one of whom is trying to advocate for him to get an arranged marriage because he tells him, he's like, listen, there's only so many Muslim girls left. Call your parents, hook it up, get it done. He goes, look at me. My wife's beautiful. Look at how I, I clearly married up. It's a lot easier this way. You're out there you know, dating all these girls, Jewish girls, white girls. It's not the same. You know, It's just easier this way. His other buddy is very religious, devout. And of course, Rami's trying to... And both those guys are really funny. They offer a lot of comic relief uh, for the show. The entire cast, though, I thought was excellent. Um, you know, I, I think in a show like this, casting is going to be so important because you want to have characters that really ring true and are authentic. And Rami has been quick to point out himself that, you know, he doesn't want to be known as making the Muslim TV show, even though it is the first of its kind. You know, as he has said, all, you know, Muslims have different experiences. So I'm specifically focusing on an Egyptian family, but. You know, is it different if you're Indian, if you're Somalian, you know, if you're Iranian, et cetera? It's, it's different for all those different communities. But I thought in terms of the performances, Amr Wakad as, as his father and Hiyam Abbas in particular is fantastic as his mom. Uh, May uh, Kalamawi uh, plays the sister. And, um, you know, one of the funnier episodes, Ramadan just con concluded, and there's an episode in which one of his friends is telling him, you know, to pray for his Mom, and Rami's telling him, well, listen, like, you know, Muslims pray five times a day. Like, I'll get it on the next one. He's like, no, do it now. Do the Ramadan. And, and even one of his friends, he's trying to, like, set him up at the mosque. He's saying, listen, Ramadan, it's Coachella for Muslims. But, you know, there's tons of one-liners like that, again, showing the humor of the show while still, you know, really dealing with these moral choices. And, um, you know, the New York Times wrote a great article about it. It said Rami is a quietly revolutionary comedy because of what he's trying to do with the show. And in particular, I, I really love this. You know, if you think about Muslims and Muslim... Um, experiences or caricatures or stereotypes in America, you know, it's often that you feel like women are diminished and it's just not accurate. And the show, two of the best episodes are about the women, um, the Dina, the sister, in one episode, the standalone episode about her. And it was great because it shows her liking this guy who's just, you know, your average white Caucasian male, seems like a nice guy, he cooks for her. But the reason he's interested in her is like cultural appropriation. Like he, he wants her to like talk dirty to him because he's, you know, he, as he says, you know, basically, <laughs> it's so ridiculous music. Do you like me even though, like, I'm a white infidel? And she's like, wait, what is this? Like, what are, you, what are you doing here? And he's like, are you just into me because of the fact that I'm Egyptian? And it's like, well, I mean, you're different. He's like, I'm white. You know, like, what's wrong with liking something different? But, you know, she feels used by this. She feels that, you know, within her own community, it's tough because if you date a Muslim guy, then, you know, that's going to get around the community and it has to be serious and it can't be frivolous. And at the same time, if you just want to have fun, well, then you feel like you're being used and you're being uh, viewed through a certain prism. You're not just being viewed as another young woman. You're being viewed as a Muslim woman. You're viewed as an Egyptian woman and all the, the contradictions that that can provide. As well, the mother episode is fantastic, you know. Again, immigrant mom raising her kids, but, and this is, again, something that I think all parents could relate to. It doesn't have to be first generation, is the fact that, oh, your kids are outgrown your usefulness, so to speak. You cook, but your husband's coming home late. Nobody wants to spend time with you. And so she ends up becoming um, a driver, like a Lyft driver, just to kind of um, experience the world a little bit. And instead, she gets more hardship because of the fact some people are rude and difficult, and, you know, she's not that familiar with the routes. And she picks up this one French guy one night. He seems interesting, and maybe there could be some romantic involved there, but you deal with her pain as well and, and the shame that she has to deal with. So I thought those two episodes in particular are fantastic in episodes um, of Rami season one. It's eight episodes. It's on Hulu. It's an easy watch. Um, like I said, he's really relying on his own life growing up in North Jersey. But Joe, have you heard much about Rami? You're aware of this show? 
You know, I wasn't until a few weeks ago, but this show I've noticed has gotten a really good word of mouth. Um, and about four or five people have recommended it to me for the reasons that you just outlined. Um, it, it seems very funny and very like of perfect for this moment. Yeah, I mean, in the New York Times article, they said portrayals of Muslims in Western pop culture have historically lacked nuance. If they're depicted at all, it is usually as the bad guy. See True Lies, 24, Homeland, among others. Um, and so that's why in 2017, a poll conducted by the Pew Research Center showed a warming view of Muslims in the United States, but still the lowest among other religious groups in the survey, including Jews, Catholics, and evangelical Christians. And so now you see a guy like Riz Ahmed, who gave a great speech to the British House of Commons in 2017 about the importance of on-screen representation. You got Asif Manvi, who used to be on The Daily Show. Um, you know, you're starting to see more of these voices that are becoming more prevalent and um, like I said, it's not even that it's a different voice. It's not even that, listen, Black Panther was great to see because all of a sudden you've got a black superhero film, which is really being appraised and shows the pride that people have in being from Africa. It's that's really entertaining. It's obviously slick and well-produced, et cetera. Similarly, in the case of Rami, you know, as he said, I didn't want to give the Muslim family the same treatment that was given to the Asian family show and the Hispanic family show. There are almost kind of tropes of how an immigrant family is treated on television, and I felt like, no, this needs to go further. So he definitely takes chances. This isn't like a really tame version of a, of a casual show. In many ways, I think it's kind of like with, with Netflix, what Hassan Minaj is doing with Patriot Act, is that they're taking chances and discussing culture and faith with regularity. Um, and in terms of authentic Muslim stories, think about Kamal uh, Nanjiani and The Big Sick was made a couple of years ago as well. So I think it's a real hit for Rami. It's great to see it's already been picked up for season two. Again, comparisons to girls or insecure shows like that. But this is a guy and a voice that I would love to hear more from. And uh, hopefully we'll get him on Cinephile at some point in time. Now it's time for a special guest here on Cinephile. A real pleasure to welcome in right now to Cinephile, C.J. Wallace. Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much, is now streaming on Netflix. It's a fascinating documentary, especially if you love The Price is Right, and it's a real obsessive fan, Ted Slauson, and it's about his relationship to the show and what exactly transpired. C.J., first and foremost, you're Canadian, so a couple of Canadians right now talking. Can, can we discuss, I don't know what part of Canada you're from, but... Being a Torontonian, I just got back from the parade, so we the North felt more like weed the North because the amount of cannabis that was being smoked. Every time I go home to Canada, I know it's something else different. This parade has a certain aroma to it. Uh, your thoughts on anything Canadian and on the Raptors specifically, if you like? Uh, I mean, it was very cool. I'm from Vancouver, so obviously uh, uh, weed the West North. Um, that's uh, that's <laughs> the oxygen over there. Um, so, yeah, uh, definitely Toronto seems to uh, be catching up quickly. Anytime I've been over there, there doesn't seem to be any shortage of that over there either. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely cool to watch everybody get all excited and to watch uh, Drake moonwalk on the top of the key. Anytime anything happened, it was fascinating. The whole thing was fascinating yeah. to see. About to say, he's giving shoulder rubs to coaches. He's alienating people. I mean, the dinosaur. I mean, it's just the Raptors are such a laughing stock, as you know. To see them actually not be successful. And rest in peace, the Grizzlies. Listen, I love Shreve Abdurrahim, big country Reeves back in the day. But as Canadians, we can all embrace this victory, just as we can embrace your documentary. For those who are unaware, haven't seen it yet, give us the synopsis of what exactly Perfect Bid is all about. Uh, it is the story of uh, Ted Slauson. Um... And uh, in 1972, uh, when The Price is Right came on, uh, he started to notice that, you know, they'd had the same fridge on there four or five times and that the price never changed. So uh, he's this math genius guy who writes all the tests 
in high school for the last however many years that decides how smart we all are, he writes those. Um, so uh, when he was on uh, watching the prizes write, he just sort of started to memorize every single prize that came up and made spreadsheets and and start go on the show to try to to be the greatest contestant of all time. And uh, there was a lot of peaks and valleys to that journey <laughs> along the way. Yeah. I- Absolutely. What I love about it, CJ, even just from that um, description of it, is you just think of like obsessive characters, you know, like I love um, King of Comedy is one of my favorite movies. And it was really ahead of its time, the way that De Niro and Scorsese had Rupert Pupkin, this character who, you know, wants to be a stand up comedian and he wants to do it on the biggest stage possible, which is Jerry Lewis's show. But he's not willing to put in the time. He's not willing to put in the repetitions and eventually just kidnaps him and shows up. And as he says, better to be king for a night than a schmuck for a lifetime. But in the case of Ted Slauson, like, as you noted, he's putting in the work. Like, whereas Rupert Pupkin just wants to be a stand up and he practices in, in his basement, his mom's yelling at him. Like, this guy is, as you said, obsessively tracking the prices of everything. Like, how. Uh, mundane a task is that? How on earth um, could he find any sort of value in that? Right. I mean, I just sort of always likened it to like Beatles records. Like if you heard the first Beatles album, you know all the lyrics. And then when the second one comes out, you know all those lyrics. And then like 30 years later, if you say, I know every lyric to every Beatles song, it's impressive. But at the same time, it's kind of like you put in the work. So that's kind of how I see that. It's it's, it's just sort of, he, like you said, he's watching it anyway. So you know, like you said, like the Rupert Pumpkin thing or, or uh, uh, Pumpkin, Pumpkin, or, uh, you know, like Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love collecting the, 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 the pudding and all that sort of stuff. That, like those people are, that's what's fascinating to me. And, and, and people that say there's no good stories or they're just remaking things all the time. It's just, I, I, I just don't get it because there's a thousand Ted Slossons out there that are far more interesting than, than rehashing, yeah. uh, you know, whatever else. It's a great reference, by the way, to Punch Drunk Love. I've never been a huge fan of Sandler's comedy, but that's probably one of my favorite movies of his, just because I'm such a huge fan of P.T. Anderson. And as you mentioned, just a character Definitely, like yeah. Ted, who's uh, a little unnerved. Um, in terms of The Price is Right, uh, how was this, you know, as a documentarian and putting the film together, um, what was the cooperation like or the um, relationship like with The Price is Right? Because, you know, you directed, you edited, and you animated this as well. Right. Uh, well, that's kind of where it got tricky. Uh, the first six months of the project, because I self-fund uh, my projects, um, so uh, I needed to make sure that like we could make it before I spent all my life savings and then we had a movie that I couldn't show anybody. Uh, so there was about a six-month process for that where we went back and forth and sort of told you know, uh, uh, what we were going to do and what the intention was. Uh, and so they said, okay, you can have whatever you want. We're here at your disposal. Um, uh, and so then we made the movie and shot everything. Uh, and then Roger Duckwitz, the original producer, um, I sent him a cut sort of backhandedly saying like, hey, check this out. I made this for you, but also secretly hoping that he'd want to get involved in some type of way or that he would appreciate it, I suppose. Um, and he ended up uh, volunteering his time for an interview. And uh, and the next day he managed to get Bob Barker to do The Unthinkable, which was to sit down for an interview as well, um, which he rarely does, if ever. Um, so saying all that to say, that's kind of when we ran into some trouble because then sort of the producers that we touch on in the film are the producers that are in charge of the archival footage that we needed to make the film. So at a certain point, uh, you could see how that might have became tricky. The more I started to get into details of the situation where they might have felt that they handled something incorrectly, uh, that's sort of where a lot of recuts and back and forth uh, took place. I'd say there was probably maybe nine recuts done in a month leading up to our premiere 
that we had to do because if we didn't, then you know we could be sued, and and if we would have screened it and hoped that we didn't get sued, then it was all. I mean, it just opened a whole can of worms of of, of things when we just kind of wanted to tell Ted's story. It really got out of control. Um, and as I said to Ted, I kind of felt like I needed to beat the prices right to be able to earn the right to tell his story about beating the prices right. So um, that's sort of, I mean, they, they were all great, but it's just, you know, they just have to say it, it, it was a scab that they didn't necessarily need picked. So I guess, um, so uh, yeah, there was a little bit of back and forth. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it was an easy uh, uh, back and forth, but it definitely gave me the confidence going forward that to get through this situation, there's literally nothing going forward that's as intimidating or, or terrifying as as trying to get through what we managed to. Uh, Bob Barker, a fascinating individual. I mean, I just find the whole idea of being a talk show host and doing it uh, with that kind of um, durability and longevity is pretty remarkable. I mean, I, I just, you literally say the name Bob Barker right away. It's a please have your, you know, pet spayed or neutered and you go from there. What, what was something revealing about him or something you didn't know about him that you found particularly noteworthy? Uh, I mean, he says that thing where uh, that he goes outside to the like the Hollywood Boulevard tour buses that that people get on and they drive around houses where people may or may not have lived at one time. Uh, he told us that that he likes to go out there and like wave to the people and talk to them because without people like that, he wouldn't have a job for 35 years. And I sort of use that quote as a way to, you know, as, as a way to sort of talk about Ted in an indirect way uh, in the film. But I mean, that's obviously something that you wouldn't expect. I mean, maybe you would, because Bob was just so, you know, sort of outgoing and really loved the contestants and stuff like that. So maybe that's not that confusing. But, you know, most people wouldn't regard most celebrities, especially at that age, at 95 or, you know, however long he's been doing it. Most most people probably had their fill at the limelight and kind of just want to, you know, hide out for a bit. So that was definitely sort of surprising and just sort of goes to, to what his character is and, and the people that are around him kind of know him for it was there ever any issue, you know, the whole concept of Barker's beauties, it's interesting now when you <clears throat> you view things through a certain prism and just how, you know, obviously society has changed and, and in many ways for the better. Is, is there a thought, um, I don't know, Bob, uh, you know, articulate of this with regards to Barker's beauties, that whole term, is it, does it feel outdated? Was it a silly thing? Was it of its time? How do they feel about that whole thing if you're the price is right, if you had to guess? Right, right, right. Um, I mean, and I, I've actually kind of taken a little bit of crap online for not addressing that sort of stuff in the documentary, but it's also like it, it's not really pertinent at all to Ted's story. I feel like it would be really strange to like all of a sudden be bringing up, you know, like the tabloid stuff about him. Uh, you know, that at the end of the day, it really is just Ted's story and, and, and how he went through it. And Bob was just sort of lending his 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 credibility to the project. Um, so I mean, that we never really asked about that, and, and you know. I, I don't know. Um, Holly, we reached out to them uh, to try to get her to do an interview, um, but she's she's definitely sort of vanished from the limelight. Um, and there was a couple of people that um, that that claimed to know her from the perfect from the um, Price is Right uh, message board that they kind of allude to in the movie. Um, there were some people that could get a hold of her, and we reached out, and uh, we never heard back. So um, obviously, there's there's still some frustration there. Um, I mean, I don't know when when everybody sort of in the industry was 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 taking everybody down for whatever reason. Uh, Bob seemed to not have any of that attention brought to him. So I don't know what that says about the situation or what. But I mean that I mean that that really had nothing to do with the movie, as far as I was concerned. So it never really came up.
Yeah, no, and I certainly appreciate what you're saying. It's hard you know, as a filmmaker because, as you said, you're telling a specific story. So, you know, if you're if you're trying to take on the entire um, enterprise, that's really not what the focus is. This isn't the inner workings of The Price is Right. This is Ted's story, as you said. So you've kind of got to obviously pick and choose, and that's so much of being a filmmaker is in terms of editing and making editing choices and, you know, using the narrative, et cetera. In terms of documentaries right, today... Right, and frankly, that's what it was. That's And in editing, a lot of the situation was, how much do I cut to Roger and how much do I cut to Bob? Because it is as much as I was, some people said it was filling time, but I was, there was kind of a parallel story of Roger and Ted both being obsessive in different way and, and, and coming together in a weird way sort of thing. No, I, I hear you. Like I said, you're, you're trying to make all those choices in terms of documentaries today, CJ, do you find it more challenging, less challenging? Obviously there's so many more avenues. And I should mention perfect bids available by the way, on all major streaming platforms, including iTunes, Amazon video, Google play, Hulu, and voodoo. I, I'm going to ask you about the feature that you're working on coming up, but in terms of documentaries, harder or easier to think than five years ago. Uh, it's really easier um, with doing uh, the new feature that you were talking about. You know, when I was done the documentary, I said, oh, I can't wait to start doing a movie where it's just, you know, lines and, and actors saying the lines and the lines are already written and everything's in order. You know, a documentary is just this free for all where every single decision is right because there's a, a million different ways you can put it together. Uh, but but I did want to ask you about um, the dark comedy, the fiddling horse coming out this summer. So you and Mallory Kennedy is a producer as well on the film. So this feature is coming out this summer. What can you tell us about it? Where can we find it? Uh, it's going to be, we're just submitting it to film festivals now. Uh, so it should be around in August or um, we're actually going to submit it to Toronto. So hopefully, ideally, that will be the Canadian premiere. Um, it tends to be a little bit more difficult. I've seen with uh, Canadian filmmakers trying to get in there because obviously they're trying to be more than, than a, 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 a local festival. So um, hopefully we uh, we can make the cut. But yeah, we're definitely um, going to be submitting to festivals. So we'll be playing uh, August and September uh, all over the place. And um, we should be streaming and having home video around November. Well, that's great news. Once again, The Perfect Bid, The Contestant Who Knew Too Much, is on Netflix, iTunes, Amazon Video, Google Play, Hulu, and Vudu. It is a story of superfan Ted Slauson, his unique love affair with The Price is Right. Did you get a chance, last one here for you, CJ, did you get a chance at all to, um, you know, walk the set or, like, spin the, the showcase showdown? I, I, like, do you have a favorite Price is Right game, any of that kind of stuff? I mean, I'm like Plinko, like everybody else, I would think. But, uh, I mean, hole-in-one always used to get me, too, because Barker made this whole big deal about walking up and doing the putt, and he'd, like, stunt on everybody, and he'd hit it right away, and then they'd have, like, a housewife that didn't know how to hold the thing or do whatever, and people are smacking it off. And then there's always a second chance, and then people get so excited. I, I don't know why they were constantly surprised, but uh, but that, that one always kind of got me. Um, I'd never been to a taping. I went one time, and, and I... Um, when I was 19, and I had no idea how early you had to get there. Um, and I showed up at like 9.30 or something, and there was a line all the way around uh, Burbank. So, um, yeah, no, I've never, I've, never, uh, I've never been around the stage, and um, I, I don't necessarily have an interest in going to the new one. Um, so uh, I think I'm just going to have to live vicariously through, uh, through the archival footage and, and, and people like Ted and Roger. Yeah, I, I just love the consistent applause. Like, it literally, so whatever the answer is, you know, they're bidding $50. All right, good answer, good answer. They all start clapping with each other. You know, it's the rare show of great sportsmanship, right? right. You can see on television. Even if somebody is making a disastrous pick, they're being unanimously praised. <laughs> it's, uh, 
it's so strange. It's like it's every single person tells, like we've toured it for a year and a half and every single person has the same story about sitting at home with the grandma or skipping school. Like it's universal. There was not one unique story. You would think there would have been one somehow, but literally every person had the same story. And I, I mean, there, there's a, there's probably a thousand Ted's out there, but um, you know, I, I, that, that's a superhero movie. I want to see it, you know, Avengers and all that stuff's cool, but I, I like Ted the superhero. That's, that's, that's good stuff to me. Well, good stuff out of you. C.J. Wallace, Perfect Bid, The Contestant Who Knew Too Much on Netflix and other platforms on behalf of uh, Grouse Mountain, Stanley Park, uh, the Vancouver Grizzlies. And thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate the time here on Cinephile. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Mount Rushmore of Will Smith Movies. All right, now it's time for a Mount Rushmore of Will Smith movies. Going to fire these down with my man Joe. So here's some of the options here. In terms of movies you sent to me, After Earth, Aladdin, Ali, Bad Boys, Bright, Collateral Beauty, Concussion, Enemy of the State, Focus, Hancock, Hitch, I Am Legend, I, Robot, Independence Day, Made in America, Men in Black, Pursuit of Happiness, Seven Pounds, Shark Tale, Six Degrees of Separation, Suicide Squad, The Legend of Bagger Vance, and Wild Wild West. Lots of films, and I'm sure we're missing a few uh, in terms of Will Smith's oeuvre. But in terms of you, listen, Mount Rushmore, Joe, I'm going to go with this list, and you correct me where you think I'm wrong. I think Ali, absolutely, I think it's his best, most critically acclaimed performance. It was um, Oscar-nominated and worthy, <clears throat> incredible the way he was able to rise to the challenge of playing Ali and able to channel uh, the braggadocio, but also the insecurity of a young Cassius Clay as he was looking to shock the world. Um, I think that Men in Black has got to be in the mix. Again, iconic film. Um, memorable for all the right reasons. A great popcorn picture. Speaking of popcorn pictures, I think Bad Boys and Independence Day. So now I don't know if I'm going to pick both, and then there's my Mount Rushmore. But if I go with Ali and I go Men in Black and I'm going to go with Independence Day and Bad Boys, is that a good enough Mount Rushmore for you? Or what am I missing? My, old, my man Dan Stanzik, if he's listening, is just through his head through the window. He loves Enemy of the State, one of his favorite films. We're, we're, we're excluding Legend of Bagger Vance, which is an easy omission. I did think Shark Tale had its moments, mainly because of Scorsese and De Niro. But what do you think? How about those four in terms of the best Will Smith movies? That's that's a pretty good list so far. I would definitely have to throw Ali on there myself. And I, I was 11 years old when that movie came out, and that movie single-handedly got in, got me into the story of Muhammad Ali. And I, you got to throw Bad Boys on there. I think you have to put Men in Black on the list. And then I'm personally torn between I Am Legend and Wild Wild West. How do you feel about this? Kind of a wild card. I was about to say, what, what is it about each film that you liked? Uh, Men in Black, just, uh, I think it's it, it hits all the notes. Popcorn movie. Uh, Bad Boys is just classic Martin Lawrence, uh, Will Smith, Buddy Cop. I Am Legend, just the story of it. It's great. And then I have a soft spot for Wild Wild West because I had the soundtrack and the CD of it growing up. That's all I need to know about my man yeah. Joe. Loves the music. Wild Wild West. That makes our belt rush more. The Butter Binge. And lastly, as we conclude here on episode two of the rebooted cinephile, is the Bada Binge. Love that Joe came up with this title as we go through some of the more notable episodes of The Sopranos. So last time we were talking about, you know, specifics of um, what to get into 
in terms of the first few episodes and the casting. But this time I want to talk a little bit more about season one in particular. Meadowlands is episode four, but episode five was really important, college. You know, for many people, they felt like this was the episode that really started to turn the Sopranos into the way that they found themselves. And the audacity of the structures itself notable because you got two narratives here. One is Tony is touring universities in Maine with his daughter, and then he also happens to spot a mob informant Fabi Petrullio, whose testimony jailed several of his colleagues, might have hastened his own father's demise. So he's literally got twin parallels here. On the one hand, he's trying to help his daughter find the right college. On the other hand, he's trying to kill this rat in the mafia. And this was the episode where really David Chase took chances and said, all right, this is a despicable character. You know, just because he's, he's not this fun gangster. He's a guy who's an actual murderer. And in the midst of trying to be a wholesome father, which he is being genuine and sincere at, he's also a killer. And that death in particular is is just about as menacing as it gets. And the fact that, you know, Meadow actually asks him about this and says, you know, not the specific murder, but just, are you in the mafia? And his reaction to it being asked this by his own daughter is amazing. How in the world can he get out of this? And you see that he's actually a, a good father. Can be, he can be a good listener. But at the same time, he's a bit of a manipulator because he's trying to find out what he can tell his daughter. And eventually, to his credit, he half admits he's in the mob. She half admits that she did get speed to get through finals. And at least they can both call each other on their own BS. There's also another... A great storyline here with Father Phil Intentola, who's played by Paul Schultz. He's, he's a celibate man. I mean, he's a, he's a father, but he's also a huge flirt. He ends up spending time with Carmela as they watch Remains of the Day. Yes, they're both cinephiles as they're um, almost concluding this dance together towards doing something which is obviously forbidden. Carmela, a devout Catholic. I mean, Father Phil, obviously a man of the cloth, and yet they're both drawn to each other. So you've got this really good juxtaposition here between Tony, who clearly is the furthest thing from that, um, and then you've got Carmela dealing with her own uh, spiritual needs and desires. So a college in particular, I think, is a really strong episode. Um, you know, you got like a marathon, you got uh, White Rabbit episodes uh, six and seven. And then a couple more episodes I want to talk about here. One is The Legend of Tennessee Moltisante, which is probably my favorite episode of season one. That's about Christopher and, and, and the character um, played by Michael Imperioli. The fact I can relate to him so much because the fact he's this young guy who just wants to be a screenwriter and um, the way he's haunted by the past dreams. It shows, again, how dreams are so important to The Sopranos, how they're so important in this character. But just when he's talking to this, him and Polly, it's such a funny episode. You know, he says, you know, what's my arc? And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, remember Devil's Advocate? And Polly's like, yeah. He goes, you know, Al, of course I've seen it. And he's like, you know, he starts it one way, he goes another way. He's like, arc. He's like, who needs an arc? But this is, this is a guy who has seen way too many mob movies in addition to being a minor level gangster. So it's really smart the way The Sopranos is working on multiple levels in this episode. It knows that We've got people who glamorize gangsters, and this guy himself wants to be, um, not only be a gangster, but he also wants to be a screenwriter. He kind of wants to have his cake and eat it, too. He wants to be the, the best of both worlds. And at the same time, you see Melfi talking with um, her ex-husband, Richard, at, at the horror of the way their people are being tarnished by Tony Soprano. They talk about the, they despise the fact there's these Italian-American gangsters and Irish-American gangsters in movies and TV and how bad it makes them look. So... It's a really funny episode, made more so by the fact that um, the character of Richard is actually one of the characters from Mean Streets, which, of course, is um, such a famous film in terms of, um, you know, giving the image of Italian-Americans and gangsters, and one of course, says he's best. Richard Romanus is the actor. So it's funny. He's distressed about the unflattering images of Italian-Americans, yet he played a loan shark in a great mob movie, which is Mean Streets, of course, at a different level. And the other episode I want to talk about before we conclude this episode of Cinephile, is Boca. I think it was such a great episode, season one, episode nine, because in the grand scheme of things, it's about codes and the fact these guys always have to adhere to codes. And if, you know, it's like the line with Goodfellas, you step on a line, you get whacked. And the fact that, you know, 
His character, Junior, pleasures his wife a certain way, which if that gets out, he's going to be embarrassed. He's going to be ashamed. He's going to be humiliated because they feel like if a guy does that, a guy's not capable of anything. He's weak. He's vulnerable. He's soft. And it shows the danger of gossip and the dangers of rumor mongering. And once it gets out what Junior's into and the way that Tony starts to mock him on the golf course after Junior kind of opens the kettle by making a joke about how Tony could have been much better at Little League and that annoys, um, you know, Tony. Uh, being a football player, I should say. You know, he starts making these jokes. Uncle Junior's into muff diving, et cetera. And, and the shame and embarrassment that Junior feels just to conceal it. And he takes it out in rage. And that scene where he goes to his girl and the way he just shoves the cake in her face. I mean, again, the Soprano Sessions book by Alan Seppel and Matt Zoller cites. They made the great point. It Clearly, it's a great homage to the, the Cagney film. And Public Enemy is shoving the grapefruit in her face. This time he's shoving a cake in her face. And, he, and, she's, and she's saying, no, Corrado, I love you. I love you. He's like, how could you do that? How could you betray me like this? And like, this is a man, he literally goes in the rain. You see the tears streaming down his face. He's literally madly in love with her. But because she gossiped, and she wasn't doing it in a malicious way, but because she gossiped and bragged to a few of her friends about the way that he's a lover, that that got around to his people, and that's unacceptable, it's unforgivable. He's going to turn his back on her, knowing at the same time he's been embarrassed in front of his friends. It's a great, great episode. It's called Boca, Season 1, Episode 9. Uh, Joe, any remembrances about those episodes in particular, The Sopranos, or anything from Season 1? Oh, yeah, the college one, the college episode gets me every time, because it, it is really that juxtaposition of him be, trying to like be a good dad and go on these college tours, but at the same time, it almost seems like he gets pleasure from seeking out and killing this old informant. And another thing I will note, too, is that uh, the first time I ever watched The Sopranos, I noticed that at least one time in every episode of season one, they reference the Godfather once. Um, and I think they do that to distinguish that they're not the Godfather by bringing it up constantly and subtly in different ways. Yeah, like you said, it's so uh, referential, you're right, particularly the Godfather. It's, uh, it's obviously a brilliant show for many reasons. That does it for the bottom beans. That does it for Cinephile. My thanks to our entire crew, of course, our producer Joe, our talent booker Carlton Gillespie, and of course, all of you for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.